the Greek island of Lesvos is located in the northeastern Aegean Sea. Once home to the ancient Greek poet Sappho, the island was sometimes referred to as the Island of Poets. Now, it's famed for something less lyrical. On January 10th, the sky in Lesvos was a dull grey. A wind blew in from the sea and a group of protesters gathered outside the courthouse in Mytilene, the island's capital. Coats zipped up to the top. They attached a large banner to a fence. Painted on it, a slogan read, If helping is a crime, we're all criminals. It was the first day of a highly anticipated trial. On trial was a group of volunteers of varying nationalities, all accused of a multitude of crimes that stem from their work helping migrants. It took four years for the case to come to trial, but lasted just two days in the courtroom. The volunteers walked out with all the charges dropped. Their lawyer, Zacharias Kesses, spoke to reporters on the courthouse steps. Realised what we were um, shouting for the last four years. So there are still many things to be done in order to reach the final step, which is the, the felonies that uh, are still uh, ongoing and the investigation is uh, still in process. Thank you very much. Despite the brevity of the trial, the impacts are likely to run for much, much longer. Why were these volunteers put on trial? What do the charges mean for other volunteers seeking to help migrants? And how have Greek-Turkish relations affected the flow of migrants? I'm Hugo Goodridge, and this is the New Arab Voice. In total, there were 24 defendants on trial last week in Mytilene. Most were Greek nationals, but a handful hailed from other countries, including Sean Binder. I am, an, I guess, an aspiring barrister and the co-founder of a criminal justice campaign called Free Humanitarians. Sean is a German-Irish national. He grew up in the village of Castle Gregory in County Kerry. When the migrant crisis erupted, Sean was studying for his master's degree in London with a specialisation in European defence and security policy. Like many people, Sean watched the unfolding humanitarian crisis with horror. You know, it was an outrage to me to learn that the way that the European Union responds to one of the most severe humanitarian crises to befall the continent is by securing a border against people in distress. And so I had this policy understanding, at least I thought I did, and I had some practical skills, or at least I thought I did. And so I went to volunteer on the island of Lesvos, which is, of course, known as a hotspot or a primary entry point for people who come to seek asylum. And they do so under the most dangerous pathways. And it means that it is an extremely deadly route. Therefore, search and rescue is of vital importance. Due to its close proximity to Turkey, just 12 kilometres away, Lesvos regularly saw small and overcrowded boats land on its shores. It also regularly bore witness to what happens when disaster strikes and the boat's desperate passengers are cast into the sea. Sean arrived in Lesvos in October 2017 and began work with the group Emergency Response Centre International. I spent most of my time just standing at a shoreline on a cliff face with a, you know, first aid backpack uh, looking out to sea from the hours of midnight to 7am. 
and um, waiting, listening for, you know, a small boat engine sounds or screaming or shouting that would indicate that there's a boat in distress. And then, of course, it gets exciting. Then we would rally. We would contact the Coast Guard. If they gave us permission to go to sea, we would use our search and rescue groups. We would activate our medical teams, most of whom were folks who worked in the NHS and came to volunteer on the island as well. And then we'd respond. Or we would respond by usually then on land when they would make it to the shoreline because it's very hard to see a boat in distress uh, at night. And so they would usually make it to the shoreline and then there would be, you know, a triage would be done dealing with the most acute medical cases first and then, and then working our way down to those cuts and scrapes that we'd also see. But again, not every night did a boat arrive. Not every night did, did people need our help. And so it was really spent just standing there with a bottle of water in one hand and a blanket in another and being ready, I suppose. Emergency Response Centre International was a Greek organisation responding to tragedies and crises on a Greek island. And it was one of the reasons that Sean chose to work with them, to be part of a Greek response. And the second reason I joined a Greek organisation like Eirtis is because it had a very good relationship with the Coast Guard. You know, I remember standing shoulder to shoulder with the police. I remember our organisation trained the police. I mean, it's, it's perhaps a bit shocking to hear, but... You know, our relatively small search and rescue organization provided uh, first aid training to the authorities. And I say this because oftentimes we get framed as though search and rescue civilian efforts are in some way oppositional to the authorities. That's not my experience. There, in the ideal world, there would be no need for search and rescue. In a better world, the authorities would be doing this job fully and ably. In the world that we live, the authorities are not fully capable of doing search and rescue work and therefore there's a gap in service and if civilians don't step into it, people will fall and drown. Working day after day, night after night, Emergency Response Centre International, alongside the Greek authorities, helped to rescue thousands of people. It was vital work that they undertook for two years. And then on one night in February 2018... And it was a night like, like most others... Initially, Sarah Mardini and I were standing at the shoreline on a cliff face on a southern point of the island of Lesbos. It is the last point in which you can easily access the shoreline. Anything south of that becomes very treacherous. And that's why it's so important to be stationed there, because we can respond quite quickly to boats that would crash into the cliffside down there. And it might have been 3 or 4 a.m. when the police arrived next to us, which is, again, pretty normal, because, as I said, we stood shoulder to shoulder with the police on many occasions. And then... Unusually, they suggested that there was something untoward about us that night. And they were very vague as to what exactly that was supposed to mean. But they asked us to, they asked us as a gentle way of putting it, to go with them to the Coast Guard uh, station. Once at the Coast Guard station, Sean and Sarah were searched, photographed, fingerprinted and detained. You may recognise the name Sarah Mardini, Sarah was the young Syrian swimmer who fled the conflict in her home country. When the boat she was travelling to Europe on began to sink, Sarah, with her sister Yusra and two others, pulled the boat as they swam for over three hours, saving everyone on board. Sarah and her sister's story was recently dramatised in the film The Swimmers. The day after their arrest, Sarah was detained in a cell, while Sean was taken by the authorities to his home and the organization's warehouse, where they conducted searches. And they went through boxes. And this revealed that 
it revealed two things. It revealed one that they didn't really know what they were looking for because at some point, you know, bizarrely, I was watching police officers putting hands in my baking flour, presumably to search for drugs. They were very purposefully trying to find something illegal or incriminating. And the second point is that they didn't really know what it was because they cast the net out very, very broadly. They found nothing, but they took our devices and our laptops all the same. And we were detained for another night until eventually we had access to a lawyer and we were released and I quote, pending further investigation. That's what the prosecutor who was with the police when they were searching my home had told me when we were finally released. No explanation was provided by the authorities. And when they did learn why the police had arrested them, it was beyond belief. A, one of the police officers had leaked a, a story, this story, to an online um, news outlet. And the article literally read something like this. A German spy... It's supposed to be me. And his Syrian accomplice were arrested in a stolen military jeep trying to infiltrate a naval base to, to steal state secrets. My first reaction to this, Hugo, was that is pretty damn cool. I love that for me. But that's because I, I really chalked it up to a joke. This is some outrageous mistake. Sean and his colleagues at Emergency Response Centre International continued their work on the island's coast, helping migrants, providing medical treatment and support and saving lives. But it wasn't until a couple of months later that we realised that this isn't a joke. This is, in fact, exactly the narrative that is forming around our organisation and indeed around other organisations, if not civilian search and rescue more generally. And that is that we are engaged in spying. We are trying to undermine Greek sovereignty. We are uh, effectively smuggling, money laundering, parts of criminal organisations, committing fraud, forgery, and illegally using radio frequencies. I mean, these are heinous crimes for which at the time we faced 25 years in prison. And because of the seriousness of it, and because the belief that this is in fact uh, the, the truth of our operations, the, the police arrested us again. And this time we were held in pretrial detention. We were formally charged with forgery, the illegal use of radio frequencies and spying. In his mid-twenties, and having gone to Greece to help in efforts to save lives, Sean with a number of others, was charged with a litany of incredibly serious crimes and held in pre-trial detention in a Greek prison for three and a half months. It's deeply jarring, I think. First of all, it, it was jarring because I had done only what Greece, the birthplace of democracy, an EU member state, a signatory to the the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, various maritime conventions. I had simply done what Greece itself has said we should be doing. And to then to be handcuffed to murderers, to be in a cell with 17 convicted felons, is, is very jarring and, frankly, uh, terrifying. On their fourth attempt, Sean and his colleagues were finally released on bail, while the Greek authorities continued to push their narrative. This group, who were helping migrants arriving by boat were criminals. Publications at the time really framed it as, you know, smugglers finally caught and detained. And then it was, you know, folks in Kerry, where I grew up, folks in London, where I now live. It was folks in Germany, where I'm originally from, that on the very local level started saying, hang on a second, like, Sean, Sarah, Nassos, these defendants are not criminals. And they started talking about it. So the local media got involved, you know, the local Kerry newspaper, you know, ran a story. And that got others involved. And today, you know, we have the UN saying this is one of the largest and most deplorable cases of criminalization of solidarity. The European Parliament has said it is the largest case in Europe. The Council of Europe 
and some of its representatives have expressed their outrage. Every single major human rights organization has discussed this, and so we've been very lucky. While he was in prison, the outside world, of course, continued. That included the boats that travelled from Turkey in the hopes of reaching Europe. But the coastlines that groups like Emergency Response Centre International watched from were now empty. The day after our arrest for the second time, the search and rescue on the southern part of the island, it dried up. And today, four years on, there's no search and rescue happening on the island on a civilian level at all. And this is not because people have uh, don't drown. People continue to drown. It is because these prosecutions have a chilling effect on the provision of humanitarian aid. And I think that's the core point. If the authorities really thought that I was the heinous criminal that they say I am, then they would have wanted me in prison four years ago. And if they had any evidence that I've done anything wrong at all, ever, I would have been in prison four years ago. But I'm not. I was held in pretrial detention until it became untenable for them to do so. And I've been waiting for a trial ever since. And so I think the delay we are seeing, the delay that we will continue to see, is really about deterring people from engaging in border work, even when I think there's a general consensus that the rule of law exists and the requirement to help people in distress exists. This is one way of deterring that. Four years after they were arrested, Sean and the other volunteers got their day in court, or at least in part. So the prosecution has split the supposed smorgasbord of crimes into two, the misdemeanors and the felonies, the misdemeanors, of course, being the far lower charges. And it split them into, for one specific and key reason, it is because misdemeanors and felonies are subject to different statutes of limitations. That basically means that the misdemeanors have to go to trial within five years. And because it was alleged that I'd committed crimes in 2016, even though I had never been on in Greece in my entire life in 2016, it meant that the limitations period comes to an end this February. And so that's why we saw a trial in January. The Greek prosecution had four years to prepare for last week's trial. But the case that they presented appeared to dissolve on contact with air. We wanted a declaration of innocence or an acquittal. Because only that will confirm to other search and rescuers that this work is important and legal and necessary. And what we actually ended up getting was a whole raft of procedural errors that meant that declaration or acquittal became impossible. The prosecution issued indictments against us that called us to trial last week that were in a language that most defendants don't understand, which is a rule of law, right to justice, violation. It was missing a page, which is sloppy and a violation. It only numbered and didn't name the defendants, which is a violation. And in fact, the indictment begins with 24 defendants and ends with 25 defendants, inexplicably additional defendants. But of course, because they're not named, you can't really prepare your own defence. And so that is a violation. Furthermore, in a truly bizarre legal decision, Sean's co-defendant, Sarah Mardini, is barred from entering Greece, even for the purpose of defending herself at her own trial. And for all of those reasons, the indictment was cancelled. And in fact, we end up with a really jarring experience where I watched the prosecutor stand up and say, we should declare the defendants innocent for X, Y crimes and cancel the indictment for the others. This is the prosecutor, the prosecution that held us behind bars for three and a half months, that had carried this out for four years. And then suddenly when it went to trial, goes, you know what, never mind. It is deeply 
deeply unjust. Justice would have been a trial four years ago. Justice would have been acquittal four years ago. This is not justice. This is a system that is not functioning properly, continuing to function improperly. Now, I'm very glad that the judges made the right decision. I think they couldn't have made another one, but it is heartening to know that they made the right decision. But I don't think I should be expected to express gratitude for a court to do what it has to do, which is deliver justice. The recent decision by the Greek court is a weight off the mind for Sean and his co-defendants. But the decision only relates to the misdemeanor crimes. Damningly and dangerously, the limitations period for the felonies is another 15 years. And if they have the same tactic as they had with the misdemeanors, we expect to be waiting another 15 years. And in fact, the investigation for the felonies has not even concluded. I went back for a deposition in November of last year with regards to the felonies, and it was the first time in four years that the prosecutor had even opened up the case file. What they're trying to do is keep the shadow of doubt over us for as long as possible. The case files provided to Sean and his legal team have revealed an almost incoherent collection of quote-unquote evidence. Some of it spurious, other parts confusing and contradictory, and some, oddly, appear to exonerate Sean of crimes. If we are the criminals, what they say they are, then we should be in prison, you know? And so bring it forward. We have tried to apply as much pressure as we can now to make sure that we don't have to wait the full statute of limitations period as we did with the misdemeanors, and I'm hoping that that is an effective strategy. As, as this wears on, the prospect of the European Court of Human Rights being asked to step in to declare this unjust, this delay, it grows. And we will explore those tools if, if the Greek judiciary doesn't get there by itself. The case against Sean and the other volunteers appears weak at best. But why were they arrested in the first place? Why, after years of cooperation with civilian search and rescue operations, did the Greek authorities suddenly start to criminalise those who had dedicated their time to saving lives? Why did aid workers become people smugglers? Simply put, it's a matter of policy. The border on land had become harder and harder in the years preceding Sean's arrest. Now, legal attention was shifting to the water. When it was once the policy to avoid boats full of desperate men, women and children drowning at sea, the policy now became to prevent the boats landing on Greek soil. Europe is one of the richest continents in the world and yet has one of its deadliest seas. That must be a decision. You know, we can't fall back on a lack of resources, lack of coordination. When people die in our oceans, it is to some extent a choice. I think that ultimately characterizes our, our border policies quite well. But those have hardened and become even worse. So yes, people continue to drown and they will continue to drown. I don't think that search and rescue can solve all of those problems. I, you know, search and rescue is a, is, a, is a plaster. It addresses not core issues. It, it can simply try to mitigate some of its worst outcomes. Groups like Emergency Response Centre International have been accused of representing something called a pull factor. The idea is that with groups like this operating, the chance of people attempting to make dangerous sea crossings increase because there is a perception in the migrants' minds and in the sales pitch of the smuggler that they will be rescued if there's trouble. 
In short, search and rescue groups are alleged to encourage smuggling. I first read this while I was in prison. I suddenly had lots of time on my hands and I wanted to get an understanding of, you know, exactly why am I being detained? And so I asked for all the research, the Frontex policy reports and so on and so forth. When I first read it, I thought, Jesus, how naive has, have I been thinking I'm saving lives and all the time I'm making the situation so much worse while propping up a very dangerous industry to boot. However, it becomes very clear very quickly if you scratch, but a little below the surface. There is no correlation between search and rescue and the pull factor. There just isn't, um, neither positive nor negative. In fact, the correlations that do exist are, for example, the kind of weather that one experiences on the Libyan or the Turkish coastline. That will determine who makes a crossing and when. Other correlations are between conflict, uh, the status of the sending country's human rights record, the status of transit country's human rights record. It's because it's expedient. And our border is characterized by expediency, but it isn't effective. So the question then becomes, okay, well, if search and rescue isn't a pull factor, what is a pull factor? A valid question. I think it's important to ask. Well, the irony, of course, is that our counter-smuggling policies, and as I have said at the outset, since 2015, that's what we have begun looking into, counter-smuggling. That is causing smuggling. Europe's anti-smuggling policies create smuggling. If you live in a conflict zone, you will likely want to escape to somewhere safe and stable somewhere like Europe. If you want to seek asylum in Europe, you need to be in Europe. And the safest way to get to Europe would be to cross the border on foot. But due to the policies of hard borders, crossing by land is incredibly difficult. There's the high razor-wired fences, the attack dogs, the soldiers with guns. And if you're a family, for example, attempting that crossing is an almost impossible task. Well, that leaves only one possible outcome given those three facts, and that is that people are forced into the hands and the boats of smugglers. Let me tell you, more than most, more than I'd say most policymakers, I have seen firsthand the treacherous conditions that people interested in money will force the vulnerable into, the situations will force them into. I mean, I have seen the overcrowded boats. I have seen the children clutching onto empty water bottles in the belief that it will offer them some buoyancy aid. Not a nice industry. But if you truly want to stop it, then you need to create safe means of seeking asylum. And that isn't just a moral argument. That is literally what the law says. The law says everyone has a right to seek asylum and we must uphold that. Those who arrived by boat on the island of Lesvos, where Sean was located, left from Turkey. So perhaps Greece and Turkey could arrange to create a safe means of seeking asylum. And I mean, sadly, there is no consensus on negotiable issues. They don't come together or anything. <laughs> um, that's a, I mean, that's a bold statement, but it, it reflects the reality, to be honest. That probably won't help. My name is uh, Suhar Chubukcholo. Suhar is a senior fellow in the Department of Strategic Studies at Trans Research and Advisory. So we can group main points of contention under two broad categories. First, issues related to the agency on one hand and the Mediterranean or the Eastern Mediterranean on the other. Aegean issues are historically more contentious and they include territorial rights, status of islands, breadth of maritime zones and airspace, as well as areas of responsibility, not just sovereignty, but responsibility, such as the FIR, Flight Information Region, and the SAR, uh, Search and Rescue Region. So in the Mediterranean, uh, there is a certain sense of disagreement over maritime boundaries, yes. 
and some minor issue on the status of violence, uh, I mean, some but minor, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the Cyprus problem that has haunted both, both countries for the past 60 years. Disagreements between Turkey and Greece go back a long way. They date back to the Ottoman Empire and continue today. Territorial disputes related to the islands in the Aegean, like Lesbos, for example, date back to the Treaty of Lucerne, which was signed in 1923. While more modern-day territorial disputes in the eastern Mediterranean, for the most part, relate to the exploration and potential drilling rights for hydrocarbons. I mean, Turkey is prepared to discuss a package of issues and to take them to the International Arbitration, the court in in The Hague, uh, the International Court of Justice. But Greece refuses to discuss or even accept any issue as negotiables other than the, the one and only issue of continental shelves or exclusive economic zones. In 2015, Greece added a clause to the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea which limits the jurisdiction of international courts on issues concerning national security, such as territorial waters. So that means that the situation we are in, uh, where that is an, is, is an impasse. I mean, it's a zero-sum game, uh, because on one hand, you have a party that doesn't want to discuss anything apart from what it wants to discuss, because it thinks it has the upper hand on this issue. And on the other hand, you have a party that wants to discuss everything, uh, not on a one-by-one basis, but as a package deal. So that leaves them in a zero-sum game that neither side is seemingly prepared to soften its stance on. Territorially speaking, Turkey and Greece are not okay. But what about migration? Turkey currently hosts some 3.6 million registered Syrian refugees, according to the UNHCR. Although, when you account for unregistered refugees and others in Turkey who have fled persecution in Iraq or Afghanistan, the true number is likely to be much higher. Following the worst days of the migrant crisis in 2015, Turkey made a deal with the EU and has made efforts to stem the flow into Europe, which is to say Greece, but can change course if they choose to. I think Turkey, you know, keeps that as a trump card, but it did a deal, remember, I mean, there was a deal in 2016 with the EU to accommodate people under temporary protection and receive in return 6 billion euros to pay for their rehabilitation and livelihoods. But there is only a certain capacity that that Turkey can take in. And frankly, it's gone way beyond that. I mean, the EU did not fulfill its obligation In 2020, the EU-Turkey migrant deal came under intense strain. Turkey was angered when talks aimed at easing visa processes for Turks stalled and Turkey threatened to open its borders to the EU. Turkey was eventually appeased and the deal stayed in place. But it did reveal its fragile nature. I mean, it's doing its best to keep them, but is not obliged, I would say, to provide them shelter uh, to every immigrant passing through its territories or to stop them on their way, because there are too many. Greece should accept them if they cross over, that's for one. I mean, instead, of, instead, what we see is that there is vast evidence uh, showing Greece regularly mistreats migrants, pushes them back, or even leaves them to their death. I mean, the EU itself made similar criticism toward, uh, you know, unlawful, inhumane conditions in Greece, but nothing changed. Um, is it politicized? Yes, it is. But 
it's already a, a, a very long-standing simmering issue that I think uh, you know Turkish people are uh, no longer uh, as accommodative as they used to be on. So they want more, either some compensation, some kind of change, or resolve that issue for uh, for good. With the migrant deal, the EU paid Turkey to absorb its moral responsibility. And generally speaking, it worked. Since the deal, irregular migration from Turkey to Greece has fallen. But during that same period, numerous reports have emerged that Turkey is forcing Syrian refugees back into Syria. In Greece, thousands of refugees remain trapped, unable to move forward, but with Turkey, Greece and the EU engaged in painfully slow political processes, they're not being returned either. And with elections coming up this summer in both Greece and Turkey, it remains unlikely that there will be a candidate that comes forward to fight for the rights of refugees. And Greek-Turkish relations? Anything good coming there? I'm not very optimistic about the future, simply because this is a deeply problematic relationship uh, that has complex underlying causal factors, uh, most of which are very difficult, if not outright impossible to address. Uh, as the proverbial saying goes, you know, hope is not a good strategy, although I would hope that, you know, cooler heads prevail on both sides. But there is no reason to see, you know, or to expect to see a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, the best approach, I think, at this point is to freeze the issues, which are a lot, you know, until a suitable time when both sides are more confident, more flexible, and more accommodating of each other to sit down and talk through them. Uh, Unfortunately, this is not the case today. Migrants and the issue of migration has become a pawn. Across Europe, in Greece, Italy, Malta and in the UK, governments are seeking to push back desperate individuals. Politicians tell migrants they must respect the rule of law and use the proper channels, while failing to provide these proper channels, themselves ignoring their own legal responsibility and shirking moral duty. To this day, when faced with desperate people seeking safety and shelter, They answer that call with force, rejection and sometimes violence. And those who do step up and do the jobs of governments find themselves criminalised and prosecuted. Final words to Sean Binder. It is the weaponization of of asylum seekers that we're seeing instrumentalised at a border that is becoming very militarised. And so pushbacks are apparent in that context as they would be in any other context. The point to remember is, you know, it doesn't matter if you like asylum seekers or don't like asylum seekers. It doesn't matter if a person eventually is recognized as a refugee or is denied asylum entirely. Everyone has a right to seek asylum. Everyone has a right to life. I might not, I might not like people who I've helped. And in fact, there's people who I've helped who I don't like. It doesn't diminish their fundamental rights to not drowning. And I feel that. Our conversations have become so polarizing and so politicized that we have lost sight of that core message. And I think that, you know, the hardening of our border, the militarization at Greek-Turkish borders, the ratcheting of our rhetoric is blinding us all the more to the fact that humans are literally drowning in our oceans needlessly. 
This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.